Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. My guest today is Dr. Anna Zaitsev. She is a postdoctoral scholar at the UC Berkeley School of Information, where she focuses on software design and development, social media, and algorithms. Her work has been published in leading academic journals, such as Information and Organization, and it's been discussed in numerous mainstream outlets, including CNBC and the New York Times. Our discussion today will focus on her paper, Algorithmic Extremism, Examining YouTube's Rabbit Hole of Radicalization, which made quite a splash. She co-authored that paper with Mark Ledwich. Doctor, it's so great to have you. So glad to be here. So before we dive in, I'd like to mention how I came across your work. There's a, a little bit of a story behind it. There's a legislative proposal in Florida being promoted by Governor DeSantis. They're going to call it the Transparency in Technology Act. As of recording, the bill itself is not out yet, but we're told that it would limit social media sites' ability to algorithmically rank content. It would also limit when such sites can change their terms of service, and it would let users sue if they don't think a site is applying its terms consistently. Uh, as I was thinking about these proposals, I recalled a great article in Wired. Uh, I recommend our listeners check it out. It was uh, issued last September. It's by Clive Thompson. It's called YouTube's Plot to Silence Conspiracy Theories. The article talks about how quickly harmful online content can evolve, how hard it is to police it, and how YouTube needed a lot of flexibility in making quick and incremental changes to its system to stop the spread of conspiracy videos. The article mentions your paper as evidence that the website's effort to combat the spread of radicalism was effective. So as I was looking back at this article, I, I really, it occurred to me, it would be so great to speak with you. Um, so with, with that table setting, you know, could you tell us about your paper and what you set out to study, your methodology and uh, what you found? Sure. So. I'll start with a tiny bit of history where this all started. So uh, I think this was around 2018 uh, and, and across 2018 and 2019, I teamed up with Mark Ledwich and Mark Ledwich is a data wizard. He, he had this data collection going on on the YouTube recommendations. And so he was interested in, in this topic and I came across his work and I was just like a casual YouTube user, uh, interested in all kinds of political YouTube. And, and I saw that he was, he was looking at this YouTube radicalization rabbit hole claims that were, um, that were really prevalent in, in mainstream media at that time, especially I think in 2017, 18, people were saying that YouTube will take you down to this rabbit hole and you will get more and more extreme videos as the time goes by if you keep on watching the recommendations. And so what Mark had done was a preliminary analysis of that data and it wasn't really showing this rabbit hole at all because it was showing that YouTube will more likely get you back to the mainstream media. So what we did is that we took the data set that Mark already had, which was uh, around the most, uh, I think it was around 200 or 100 most um, watched videos. And we expanded it to 800 
most watched videos on YouTube, which we decided would be in the political sphere. So news clips and other political commentators and, and anything that is more political than not political. So we had a threshold of has to have at least 30% of political content. So, so there's a lot of videos on YouTube that didn't really fall into this category. And so what we did with that data is that we expanded the set of videos and we did this more granular uh, categorization of the content type. So we wanted to know what type of content is there because it is really vague to say that you're getting radicalized without really specifying what are those exact radicalizing type of type of videos. And so we wanted to pinpoint if there is a large, large contingency of video clips that you could consider radicalization. And, and that would be the extreme fringes on, on political spectrum. And so we did find that there are some clips and there used to be more when we did the study and some of them have been taken down, which could be considered, all right, so these, these people are talking about more inflammatory things. But what we did find after that is that those videos were getting very little recommendations and YouTube was constantly pushing the viewers in their recommendations to the more mainstream versions of maybe similar type of content or if you're already in kind of like centrist content just onto the mainstream media content. And so that was the gist of the gist of the paper that we published together. And that has been the kind of tendency that you see because Mark is still collecting that data. So there hasn't been too many changes which would be showing that that the extremist content is now for some reason getting back recommended again. And so we did get a bit of confirmation from like I like you said, the Clive Owen article, he he was saying that um, that he's spoken to YouTube and that they were saying basically that they've been doing the same thing. What YouTube, they have published few technical papers as well, which was kind of confirming our thesis on this. And and there's been since more research that has been basically saying that, yes, there are some filter bubble phenomena going on. People are keeping within the same content, but mostly YouTube is not really recommending them really extreme content at all. So in terms of concrete examples, we're talking about, say, uh, you watch a video of that's uh, white nationalists or, um, I don't know, Stop the Steal or something, and it's going to recommend like Fox News at you. Yeah, basically, there could be some steps in between, but but because YouTube knows which content is their preferred content, they, they like the big news outlets, they like content where they have some kind of partnerships with the content creators as well. Uh, they will more likely give you that type of content instead of getting you down into more, let's say, white nationalist content. So I forget the exact numbers. I, I, it's millions of hours of, of uh, viewing of YouTube every, you know, each hour, each day. I, I don't want to, maybe I'm an order of magnitude off, but there's a ridiculous amount of content on there is the point. And uh, as the Wired article talks about, uh, your study most likely kind of comes on the tail end of YouTube trying to do exactly what you found. And, you know, I, you are also an expert in agile software development, uh, a very interesting field. I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on, you know, 
what kind of effort did it take, you know, for a site with that much content to create? It seems like you're, you're basically just shifting the tide. Uh, you know, what goes into making the recommendation system change like that? Well, I think from technical perspective, YouTube obviously has really capable developers and, and they they know what their algorithm does. So I don't think it's trivial to change the algorithm. I think it does require an effort, but for them, because they know the insides and outsides and they know what their ranking system is and, and they can look at what their content on the platform is as well, because they, they get the transcripts of the videos, they can analyze the imagery, like you can do any kinds of topic analysis on their content that they would have themselves they they know what their what their content is so so them tweaking the algorithm is probably i don't i don't think i, I couldn't i couldn't call that kind of stuff but but for them it, it is probably not that not that hard if but i think the problem here is not necessarily the technical the technical part but the decision making part where you have to decide are we going to be down ranking some content? Are we going to be making sure some content gets a boost? What type of content? And so I think the issue there or the, the difficulty is just figuring out what do you really want to do with your platform? What are your goals? And then making sure that the algorithm follows those goals because the business part is here, what I think is more relevant. YouTube's not really... I don't think they are a risk-taking business. They don't really like the bad publicity that they get if if some conspiracy video starts suddenly trending for some reason. So I think their risk averseness will guide what kind type of content they would like to promote on their platform as well, which makes sense. Like they're in the advertisement business. So if the advertisers are upset, they're not getting their business and that's going to be bad for YouTube as a business. Well, that's interesting. You, you've helped me reconceptualize the problem, um, you know, because I'm not I'm not nearly as versed in the actual computer engineering as I'm, as I'm sure you are. But it sounds like that's actually a whole other problem. And and I'm curious. So, do you have to make incremental choices as the content changes? Because another thing we see with radical content is it's constantly evolving. You know, one day it's something about stop the steal. The next day it's the pandemic. Actually, I think they, those are reversed in chronological order of when they exploded. But um, so are you needing, if you're YouTube, to constantly be meeting a, to figure out what the next thing is and then make a tweak to the algorithm? Or is the algorithm so good that you can kind of set it and it will catch these things as they come up and put you into more mainstream outlets? Well, what I would imagine that, that they would see is that if things start suddenly trending to one or the other direction, they would probably get some kind of kind of heads up on that in terms of the technical, technical side of things. But again, and I think the pandemic or the other COVID type of content is a good example because like before the pandemic, I don't think there was a lot of infrastructure or a lot of thought put into, let's say we suddenly get a pandemic that's gonna be global and it's gonna take everybody by surprise. What type of content can we allow to be published on this? And I think YouTube pretty early on, they took a really strong stance on going like, yeah, we're gonna go with whatever WHO and I think CDC said, I, I have 
saw an interview with Susan Wojcicki about this, where she was laying out their, their policies on it. So there had to be some kind of tough decision-making point where they decided, all right, so this is where, this is where our content policy is regarding this, this part. And then I think it's just a matter of technical tweaking to make sure that, that all the things that are COVID related are then caught up by the algorithm and you can make decisions on what that content is. But, but there is also the side of it that people who are posting content and who want to get around things that are censored or down, downgraded, they will be endlessly creative about that as well. So they won't necessarily use the terminology. They'll start using euphemisms or they might not necessarily talk about the content like as directly as they would if they would think that that would be okay. So, so it's the same, same old, this has been a historical issue since, since forever because people will come up different ways that will kind of circumvent all the different restrictions until those are found out and then you kind of have to go to the next thing. So, so there is this human element that will have to be keep track of like what is the latest creative way of talking about these things without actually talking about these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a constant game of, of cat and mouse and you have both the algorithmic side and then the human decision making side, which of course we don't yet think as fast as, uh, as algorithms do and that probably is painstaking for YouTube uh, and these other social media platforms. Um, one of the uh, acknowledged limits in your paper is that, you know, you look specifically at uh, YouTube as not, you know, you're not signed in as a person uh, with a profile. Do you think it makes a big difference if you're signed in uh, what YouTube's gonna recommend at you? I think it makes some difference. So since we published our paper in, early 2020, there's been a couple of other studies. There was a one preprint and then uh, ADL actually did a study a few weeks ago, uh, which confirms that there is this uh, small filter bubble effect. And those two studies are interesting because they're done with, and I, I presume this is logged in data, they're using actual user data. So they've had had some, some uh, browser attachment where the browser just captures what type of type of recommendations are coming up, up next. So the uh, Jose Marty and, and others preprint basically says that sure, there are some filter bubbles when you're logged in, but essentially what happens is that most of the content is still mainstream. And I think the ADL was pretty close to that. So, the, so they're saying that, yeah, there is content. If you start watching one type of content, it will offer you similar type of content, but it doesn't, it doesn't get you to the really inflammatory or fringe content. So I think with those two studies and then our studies providing the really big picture, which is the, the overall frame of, of what, what type of content YouTube likes, I'm fairly confident in, in our original thesis that, that YouTube does prefer a certain type of more mainstream oriented content. We also have another study with Mark Ledwich and Anton Laukemper coming out uh, hopefully soon, which where we've been also emulating logged in type of behavior on YouTube. And it seems to follow the same, same big trends. So obviously there can be some small uh, variations to this, 
but the big trend is that you're getting more mainstream content if you start off from fringe. And if you start from mainstream, you'll be kept within the mainstream. And then, so you definitely emphasize the amount of human decision-making that needs to go into this. Um, it would seem to me that that might make a, uh, make cultural challenges for YouTube. So YouTube, and again, you know, this seems to apply to other platforms, the big ones that we think of like Facebook or Twitter, where uh, they're big in the American media. There's a lot of pressure on them here to make sure that they're combating this kind of stuff. Is there any evidence that extremist content slip, uh, slips through the cracks and is more recommended in other countries and cultures that maybe are not on our radar here in the United States? Um, or is the algorithm sort of so good that once you tweak it, it sort of knows extremism, even if the language changes or the context? I think, I think that's a really good question. I've read a few papers which have been around extremist content on YouTube in Germany, so German language area where they were saying that yes they're but they were not really looking at the recommendations algorithm they were the just talking about the existence of this type of content so it's hard to say how does the algorithm behave in german speaking world from other platforms i think there are things where that might slip through the cracks so if we take facebook for example uh, Facebook had a controversy a few years ago because there was some content which was in Myanmar, Burma, when, where they had where they had people posting inflammatory things about the minority populations in there. And Facebook got a lot of flack about it because they were not reacting to it in any way. And I don't know if maybe it was the lack of understanding of the context or the language or, or not just, just not having anyone looking at, at that specific area of the world. So, and I, I've done a bit of research in Cambodia and, and the, like the, the surrounding the countries around that region, they're really heavy Facebook users. So Facebook in Southeast Asia is a really big tool if you don't count the Chinese region where they're using completely different social media. Like what Facebook has done, and I don't think YouTube has done anything similar so far, is that because Facebook is really big on this fact checking, uh, they have partnered with the heaps of organizations across the world, which serve different language areas, which do fact checks. But obviously these are probably pretty small organizations. They don't have staffs of thousands of people who would be looking at everything. So I'm sure there's gonna be things that are gonna slip through the cracks. And it really depends on what type of content are you prioritizing at any point in time. So with YouTube, I think that's slightly different. Uh, I haven't read anything about massive fact check organization partnerships that, that they would have. So they have some kind of content moderation team that is probably multilingual because they do moderate content in different languages. But because the focus on politics and radicalization is so much in the the, the US context, maybe maybe you can extend it to the English speaking world. I think there are going to be things that YouTube will not spot or it will take them a long time. So unless users are specifically telling them that this is something that, that shouldn't be on this platform in this small, tiny language area, I, I don't think they would probably have that kind of capabilities for everything and, and, and all, the, all the different languages. So, so I do think there are probably areas where it's easier to post 
something that is more radicalizing or more inflammatory. Whereas in English, I think it's, it's becoming harder and harder. Kind of reminds me of what is said about AI sometimes where the first 90% takes 10% of the effort and the last 10% 90% of the effort. I mean, once you get to more niche languages. Um, at any rate, well, so no one outside YouTube knows the nuts and bolts of YouTube's recommendation system. And some researchers are pretty unhappy about this. So another thing I was curious about, um, YouTube's response is that making too much information public would, would actually aid people. You kind of mentioned the cat and mouse game a little earlier, um, help people who want to game the system to make extremist content spread. So as a researcher, what do you think about that? Would revealing more information about the system actually potentially enable more radicalization or not? I think, and this is my business school background talking, but I think it's probably not as much to do with the, we're going to be enabling radicalization thought, but we're going to be enabling our competitors because YouTube's recommendation algorithm is, it is part of their business. It is their, their IP. I don't think they would like to share it. They do have competitors. I would be, it would be the best day for someone like TikTok if they would start sharing what their algorithm is because it is still probably the best in the markets. So even if they would make it more transparent, they can never show, I don't think they could ever show what their algorithm actually specifically does. Like they can publish conceptual papers where they describe what the technology is. Those are not going to be interesting to anyone who's like not in that field. So they probably don't know what's going on in there. So they do tell us essentially what they're doing, but the finer details that that could also maybe be exploited by someone, I think those are going to be their their business secrets. And as a from from if I'm thinking them from a business perspective, I don't see many reasons why I would like to share that that information to all the world to see, since they're definitely not the only company who is in this space and, and all the other companies are, are trying to work through the same issues and, and would probably love to have that info. Interesting. Well, maybe I'm revealing my priors a little bit here, but that actually makes me realize that also if you, if you reveal it to competitors, you may end up having competitors who do a lot less moderation and are just less responsible and it ends up causing more extremism that way. Um, mm. then again, maybe, maybe not, maybe it allows, um, you know, NGO type groups to understand more and give better feedback on how, how this stuff should be moderated. So that's my more even handed take on it. At any rate, um, a final interesting, um, finding from your paper that I wanted to touch on was, um, how the effort to steer people away from like conspiracies, you know, flat earther stuff also happens to disadvantage people who might uh, more charitably be called like free thinkers. Um, you know, say what you will about Joe Rogan, but I'll just put him as a placeholder here because I, I think he's well known. Um, somebody like him, you know, I don't get the sense he's trying to like evangelize for a particular worldview or politics. He's just trying to, you know, uh, look at things with an open mind and he maybe has more guests on who are, uh, maybe fringy characters, but he's not doing it because he wants you to think the, the that aliens um, are invading. He just it's it's making interesting content and hearing different viewpoints. He has Bernie Sanders on, but then he has Jordan Peterson on. Um, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, is that good? Is that bad? I, should we all be? 
is there a is there a downside to us all getting shunted into mainstream sources on the recommendations? Well, I think from from YouTube perspective, and if you're looking at historically where they started off was this interesting quirky videos that people were posting and and there was the early internet culture where basically everything goes and i'm old enough to remember where you didn't click links where you didn't know where they came from because like most horrendous things could come up there so so that was the culture of the internet of the 90s and early 2000s and before really, I think mainstream mainstream outlets caught up with that. So, so some of that nostalgia for this type of content probably still remains. And what YouTube has been doing with their independent content creators, I don't, I don't think it is really. It's not really the same company anymore in the sense that that it used to be for whoever wanted to post any kind of interesting content and, and all that. So, so since YouTube has been more aggressively competing with the mainstream, I, I do think most of the indie content creators have been suffering from that. So, so it is really hard to have some kind of interesting quirky fringe personalities like Joe's got Bob Lazar talking about the area 51 and all that stuff. But, but on the other side, you don't even, you don't even really get a lot of success from the algorithmic perspective, even if you would be discussing these things very critically. So let's say you would like to do debunking flat earth clips and people used to do that to some extent, those type of content will also get probably downgraded because it is talking about these topics that are now deemed to be outside of the mainstream narrative. So whoever is the independent content creator in, let's say, the political sphere will probably have a harder time now breaking breaking out from the masses and getting their stuff out there properly, which is why there is a uh, there are these alternative platforms where this type of content is more, uh, let's say, uh, allowed more and people can access it. And it, a lot of those content creators have been moving to to other platforms where they can talk about flat earth more freely. <laughs> so, but I think, again, there is the kind of part of that that we should also remember is that YouTube's YouTube's political or this kind of conspiratorial sphere is very small in terms of their total business. So a lot of the content on YouTube has nothing to do with politics. And the most watched content is probably music videos and, and makeup tutorials and all that. So, so they're looking probably at their bigger big picture where they have all this other type of content. And then you have like this annoying, noisy political bubble somewhere which is tiny to them but is it is getting all the media attention and it is getting them more flack and because it's not really their primary content creation sphere I don't think they have that much issues with downgrading those clips either because it's not really what gives them the ad revenue it's not really their primary content that that people watch like a lot of a lot of people who are in this kind of political analysis and, and social media, it is really easy to get stuck in your own bubble and think like, obviously everybody's watching this type of content, but it's probably not true. I think most people have no idea about any of these 
fringe personalities. Maybe Joe Rogan, he's more popular outside that. But but besides him, I, I think these things are very niche. Well, that is the big topic these days. Um, you mentioned advertising, and and I see this interesting dynamic that maybe we'll have to have you on again sometime to talk about where, where it's really changed in the last few years where the big platforms are now very conscious of the advertisers and keeping them happy, which is causing the platforms to sort of try to mainstream their content more. And everybody's views are kind of flipping. So the, the it's actually a corporate pressure, those, those evil corporations that are causing mainstream, mainstreaming on the platforms. And yet at the same time, that's pushing stuff on to, you know, maybe one day we'll even see like blockchain social media. And, and mm. I'm skeptical that you can just stamp out extremist content and just have it be suppressed and it's going to evolve. And I'm so glad you're studying this stuff. And, and I'm, I'm interested, I'll be interested to hear your views as this stuff continues to, um, it's almost like water finding its level, you know, the pressure on one end causes evolutions on another. And um, at any rate, well, this has been so very interesting, Dr. Zaitsev. And I definitely in wrapping up, speaking of being interested in your work, um, wanted to give you a moment if you previewed one paper you were talking about, but if you just want to let us know, the listeners know of any upcoming projects um, or events that, uh, you know, are, are worth sharing. Right. So uh, Mike Ledwich with Sam Clark, he, they've been doing a lot of, Sam Clark was the person who uh, created an algorithm that allowed it to expand the video analysis from our original 800 videos to now several thousands. So they have the website transparency tube where you can look at which topics are currently discussed. It gives you a lot of analysis, analysis tools, really good site, kind of a sister site to the Recfluence site, which is where you can see where the recommendations are flowing. And so uh, those two, two guys, they've been also launching this project. Um, it's like, a, it's their startup, which is called The Pendulum. The website is pendulumfn.com. And they've been now working on analysis where they compare the QAnon conspiracy theory and how it's been suppressed on YouTube, but has been growing on on the alternative platforms. So that's a very interesting project. Uh, from my personal work. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, by alternative, do you mean like Parler and Gab or you just mean YouTube competitors? Uh, the video platforms. So Odyssey, oh. BitChute, um, those. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so from, from my personal perspective, uh, yeah, so we do attempt to publish a paper on the more uh, personalized YouTube videos in some point near future. And I've been also looking at Facebook's content moderation from a systems theory perspective, so kind of bringing the more academic analysis in it. Systems theory, very interesting way of looking things, lots to use in business, in software development as well. And so that has shown how the COVID pandemic has really disrupted the system. And I use it as a case study where you can see that, that because Facebook has this, has this armada of content moderators, but because the pandemic forced everybody to work from home 
and Facebook has been very restrictive on their access rights, the people who were working on the content moderation didn't have the access. So Facebook had to really quickly scramble and assign other people to do the moderation and also really tweak their algorithms and repurpose some of them to start now looking at COVID misinformation as they would as they would classify it. So there has been like this really interesting chain of events where you both have to modify your human decision-making, but also really quickly try to figure out how do you do the algorithmic side of content moderation. So hopefully I will have that paper out at some, some point. And finally, I've been also working on the agile, agile development stuff, hoping to publish on my on my own agile theories, which are based on the things that I did for my PhD research. Well, if my listeners are like uh, me, they um, they have about four podcast episodes that they want you to come back on for now. So uh, we'll have to we'll have to leave everyone waiting. Dr. Anna Zaitsev, UC Berkeley School of Information. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Council, Tech Freedom. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.